Good morning. This morning we're going to finish, maybe, I'm, I'm never in a hurry in Sunday school. I want us to fully discuss whatever comes up, but we're going to potentially finish Peter's sermon to his Jewish brethren on the occasion of the healing of the lame man. And you might wonder why we spend so much time on this, but it's really dense. And I think when you see some of the theological material in here, you'll be, how should I say it, you'll have a better appreciation for the inspiration of Scripture. I don't know how anybody could dream this up. It's too profound. So let me read the text and then begin with prayer. Starting with Acts 3.19. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, quote, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Verse 23, And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. Unquote. Likewise, says Peter, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 26. For you first, God raised up his servant and set him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Thus says the word of God. Let's have prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us this material that's so powerful, that confronts us with the gospel and shows us how prophecy is fulfilled and how preaching confronts everyone with the truth of the gospel. And we pray that we'd have wisdom and understanding from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, there's a, as you can see, this is what I would call theologically dense. <laughs> there's a lot of material here, and I will take however long it takes to get through this. I don't know if it'll be today or today plus next week. So let's go to verse 19 and 20. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that not every version cuts off between 19 and 20 at the same place. Okay? Some versions have more of verse 20 thrown in with verse 19. Others have a shorter verse 19 and more of it into 20. It's the same material. So I solved that problem. I'm going to have 19 and 20. Okay? And this is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Okay, Peter. Now, why was Peter preaching to his Jewish brethren? 
because God had healed a lame man and this gave occasion for the preaching of the gospel. And it also fulfilled prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35 as other healings have done. Okay, 19 and 20. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed to you as the Messiah. Here, repent and turn back is using two terms for repentance. They're describing the same thing, repent and turn back, repent and return. And so these two words are used throughout the New Testament for repentance. They're synonymous, although they're slightly different. The words are metanoeo and epistrepho. So this is an important gospel theme. There are people who say the repentance has no place in the gospel. They're wrong. (laughs) They're very wrong. It's central to the gospel. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. So here is how sins are dealt with through the gospel, through repentance and faith. I'm going to quote F.F. Bruce. His commentary is actually from 1988. It's not one of my newer ones, but it's still valid, still has some good material. Bruce says, All they had to do to avail themselves of this salvation was to change their former attitude to Jesus and to bring it in line with God's attitude. God had clearly declared his verdict by raising him from the dead. Let them therefore repent. Let them repudiate with abhorrence their acquiescence to the murder of their true Messiah. Let them turn back in heart to God and the salvation and blessing procured by their Messiah's death would be theirs, says Bruce. Their sins would be blotted out, even that sin of sins which they had unwittingly committed, consenting to the death of the author of life. Here, says Bruce, is the heart of the gospel of grace. Wow. Wow. So we need to preach with boldness the gospel of grace, which includes repentance. And so Peter did. The blessing of messianic salvation was still available to these Jewish people, even though they had consented to the crucifixion of their Messiah. And the book of Acts doesn't give up on the possibility of the repentance of Israel, nor does this verse. And even though Jesus has bodily ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, here it anticipates a future sending of Jesus who has been appointed for you as Messiah. So the return of Christ... To save Israel is predicated on Israel's repentance. Here we are 
couple thousand years later, and we still haven't seen that repentance. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. In Romans 11, it says very much that it will happen. Now, what are these seasons, kairos, times, crucial moments of refreshing? The term refreshing in the Greek is anapsupsis, and it's used in the Septuagint of Exodus 8.15. That's a very interesting passage. In fact, it's worth turning to. Let's all turn to Exodus 8.15, where the same word is used. It's on the occasion of the plagues, in this case the plague of the frogs. Well, let's go back to verse 13. The Lord did as Moses had said, the frogs in the houses, courtyards, and fields died. They piled them up in countless heaps, and there was a terrible odor in the land. Yeah, I imagine that big piles of frogs would, would stink. But notice verse 15. This is where our word is found. Times are refreshing. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, that's our word in the Septuagint, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Boy, that would make a good gospel sermon, wouldn't it? Things are going really bad. Got the frogs in your bedroom and kitchen and everywhere in the land, and now they're rotting and stinking, but at least they're dead. So he gets a little bit of relief on a supsis. And he decides not to repent. And more plagues came. The old Pentecostal evangelist, when we were young Christians, my brother Wayne and I, preached a sermon called Another Night with the Frogs. It wasn't so bad. (laughs) I have a little bit of relief. Why should I turn to God? Peter is telling his Jewish brethren that if they're going to have true refreshing, the refreshing of the return of Messiah, they need to repent. As others have pointed out, The book of Acts never gives up on the possibility of the future repentance of Israel and their healing and restoration. They never give up on it. So the irony here, it says Jesus, who's been appointed, Messiah was appointed for Israel. Appointed here means by divine decree that Jesus, the Messiah, would be the Savior of Israel, but they rejected him, and they wouldn't believe that he was the Messiah. Now, salvation also goes out to the Gentiles, as we'll see in Acts chapter 10, and the same call goes to the Gentiles to repent and believe the gospel. Luke Acts, repentance is a theme. I'll show you that in a bit. Now, let's go to verse 21. 
heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Must is an important theological word in Luke-Acts. And, in fact, we'll look up a bunch of verses that use it. Dei, Delta, Epsilon, Yoda. And in Luke-Acts, it denotes divine necessity. And what makes something necessary is God's purposes. So the reason heaven must receive or welcome, is the Greek word, Jesus, is God's purpose. I think I'll uh, hand out some verses here to save my voice. Paul, you want to do Luke 4.43? Steve, Luke 9.22, Nancy, Luke 13.33, Joanne, Luke 17.25, Michael, Luke 24.44, Rich, got a Bible? Good man. (laughs) Acts 4 and verse 12. Then we got a few more, but let's see if we can get that far. The first one is Luke 4.43. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Yeah, must there is day. So it's God's purpose, because he's thus sent, that he preached the gospel to these other towns. Okay. To Steve, Luke 9 and verse 22. Okay. The the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Must. So the the death, the rejection of Christ and his resurrection day must happen Because it's God's purpose. The Bible's very clear that God's purpose is being done, and that's what this day means. Okay, and then we have Luke 13, 33. Yes. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Okay, so the reason Jesus needed to journey was God's purpose day it's necessary it must happen Luke 17 25 but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation there again is in Luke Acts day must the divine necessity now in Luke 24:44. okay that was Luke what 2444 Alrighty. Okay. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. 
There we go. Must be fulfilled. So there's no if, ands, or buts about it. What is written in the prophets must be fulfilled. Ron, do you want to do Acts 4.12 and Nancy Acts 9.16? Uh, Ron, Acts 4.12, if you can find it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. Yeah, that's a very interesting. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Day, divine necessity. It's necessary from God's purposes that we be saved through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Modern thinking sees that as too restrictive. But God determines how we're saved, not man. Acts 9.16 is next. This, this is the calling of Paul, actually. I will, sh- I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Okay. So Paul was... It was the divine necessity that he would suffer for the name. There's more. So it's necessary that heaven welcome Jesus until. Now, this has been interpreted various ways in church history. There was a guy in the 80s who wrote a book called Held in the Heavens Until. And in his Theology, the until men, until the church takes dominion over all the world and obtains all the wealth of the world and rules over the world. And so he was teaching dominion theology. And so Jesus can't come back until the church has dominion over everything and welcomes him back. But that's not whatsoever what is being taught in this passage we got to go back. Turn with me back to Acts 1 and verse 6 and 7. And we, we can see that this post-millennialism or dominion theology is false. Okay. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So they knew there were still promises given to Israel, and they wanted to know if this was the right time, now that he was raised from the dead. Verse 7, And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, amillennialism says this will never happen. The church is Israel. Israel is nothing, and God will never restore Israel. I heard John MacArthur preaching on this, and he made a really good point right out of this passage. There's no appointed time for something that's never going to happen. (laughs) That's like saying there's appointed time, Galatians 4.4, for Messiah, but really Messiah never will come. Uh, That's absurd. But an awful lot of people believe that because they think Israel is is done with. Now we can find this same until in Romans 11, 
25. Let's see if I can find that. Romans 11:25. So that you will not be conceited, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full numbers of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, a liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this is my covenant. This will be my covenant with them. I take away their sins. So the scripture teaches a future restoration of Israel. That's our until. Does that make sense? Anybody want to dispute that? No? Okay. There's no such thing as an until that must be for a non-event. Okay. These promises are given to the patriarchs. We'll notice that Isaiah, or excuse me, uh, Abraham is soon to be mentioned. I have a lot of verses, probably won't read them all, but Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And then it describes the millennial kingdom. So the hope for the restoration of all things that Peter had been one of the disciples asking Jesus about in Acts 1.6 is preached on here as something yet future and predicated on Israel's repentance. Now some could say, well, Israel never will repent, so this never will happen. But that's not what it says in Romans 11, 25 and 26. And it's not what it says in these promises for a millennial kingdom. Eric, do you have anything to say about this? Amen. Amen. Okay. Okay, Rich. The same people that said that Israel would never become a nation again are the same people saying they'll never repent. Yeah. They will. When does it happen? Well, toward the end of Daniel's 70th week. Eric's been preaching about. Well, let's go to the next verse. Verse 22. Though this is important, I hope you're listening. Acts 3.22. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. And everything that he will say to you. Now, what exactly is Moses telling us about? Who is he predicting who will be the prophet like Moses? Jesus, right? Jesus the Messiah. Moses was the lawgiver under the old covenant, Jesus is the lawgiver under the new covenant. Now, we're going to look at some verses that will prove that to us. There are people who refuse to believe this, but they're in rebellion against the word of God. And they're just as 
much spiritual jeopardy as the Jews were who wouldn't listen to Christ. It says in Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. You can't afford to ignore Jesus Christ. And you can't come up with some really bad doctrine that says Jesus Christ's teachings are not binding on the church. That's utter nonsense. And that's rebellion against God. And it will be required of those who teach that. Moses said, listen to him. Some preachers say, no, you don't have to listen to him. It's just sort of a historical oddity that Jesus said these things. Well, let's see. Luke Acts, remember now, Luke Acts is a two-volume work, right? Luke Acts. There are themes that are developed in Luke that are left hanging until Acts, showing that Luke intended to, he read both volumes. And then you'd get the idea, some of these dangling narrative threads don't dangle in Acts, they're, they're explained. So Luke Acts is two volume. So having said that, let's go back to Luke 9. Go back with me to Luke 9, 29. And we'll see what God says about who is the lawgiver for the new covenant. Luke 9, 29. This is on the occasion of the Mount of Transfiguration. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah. Stop right there. Why Moses and Elijah? These things happen for a reason. It's not just accidental. You got it. Moses was the lawgiver of the Old Covenant, and Elijah was the most famous prophet. Okay, so here you have everything that the Jews held in high esteem. Moses and, the, and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Good answer, Peter. Free coffee. Yeah, you get free coffee <laughs> and the astute reading award. Verse 31. Who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Notice that the ascension is accomplished. The crucifixion of Messiah, the rejection and crucifixion of Messiah may seem tragic on a human level, but it's God's purpose. We saw that in Peter's sermon in Acts 2.23. Okay, so the, the departure is accomplished because it was God's purpose. Verse 32 of Luke 9. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. How do you fall asleep during something like that? <laughs> I don't know if this is a correct reading. I told it to Eric, and he thought 
I might have been onto something. You know who fell asleep on the occasion of an, a, a covenant being ratified? Abraham. Remember the smoking pot went through the two pieces and Abraham was dead asleep? I'm wondering if this is an allusion back to that. Because here is the establishment of the new covenant and they're sleeping to show God's doing this. My reading, you can judge whether that's a little too creative or whether it was intended by the author. So they're sleeping. Yes. Just to ask off of what your theory was, uh, if they had Abraham, if God had put Abraham asleep so that Abraham didn't have a right to make his part of the covenant, did he also put them to sleep so they don't have a right to? Put that's their what I'm part wondering. Yeah, that's that's what I'm asking out loud. It may be intended. I don't, I can't say, but what comes up next is really clear. Okay, so they fell asleep. So this is God's doing. That's something that they figured out. I'll say that much. And now when they were awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. Verse 33. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you. One for Moses. One for Elijah. Notice what it says here. There's a narrative clue because he was not realizing what he was saying. That narrative clue tells us Peter was totally confused. This isn't correct. And we'll see that in a moment. Now, what was he thinking of? These tabernacles would be tents of meeting. Remember in... Exodus, Moses would go to the tent of meeting and God would meet him there and he got face-to-face revelation for Israel. So he was indeed the lawgiver under the old covenant and spoke for God. Now, Peter is thinking, okay, this is really cool. We got Moses, we got Elijah, why don't we have three tents of meeting and we could just decide which one to go to and then one of them wouldn't get too busy. You could inquire of Jesus. You could inquire of Moses. You could inquire of Elijah and get your word from God. Get revelation from God. Oh, yes. Please, uh, go ahead, Norm. Um, just a question why do, why do you think the tabernacles were tent of meeting and not not tabernacles that they used for the feast of tabernacles because i think it was at that season that it, how how do you come to because that they're well, because of who they're for moses had a tabernacle in the old testament where he inquired of god all right now plus where we're going we haven't got to the end of this yet the real issue is who we listen to. So it wasn't just, hey, no, Moses doesn't have anywhere to live. Let's put him in a tabernacle. Or he's going to keep the feast of booze. I believe these are tents of meeting. And uh, because they're unique to people who spoke from God in the old covenant. 
But we'll see the we'll see the point of the author as we go along. Good question, though, Norm. Very good question. Okay, verse thirty-three were the three tabernacles. Verse thirty-four. While he was saying this, okay, so now he's thinking three tabernacles: Moses, Jesus, Elijah. He's still saying it, but he didn't realize what he was saying according to the text. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, what is the cloud an allusion to? The Old Testament. The cloud in the wilderness. The cloud at Sinai. God meeting Moses in a cloud. I think that's correct. So here's a cloud. This is an event of revelation. This is a significant time in salvation history. And talking about Moses in a tabernacle, the cloud used to come and be part of their experience in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. Verse 35, this is the key verse. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, Listen to him. That's why I think these tabernacles were tents of meeting. You don't need three. You've got one. And it says in John that Jesus tabernacled amongst us. The claim is that he does speak for God. He claimed to speak for God. He said that you have heard, but I say to you, you have heard, but I say to you, And Jesus spoke authoritatively for God. And so in the Old Covenant, they had Sinai. They had the ten words. They had the cloud and the smoke and the awesomeness of God bringing revelation to Israel through Moses. And they said, don't have God speak to us. We'd rather have Moses. We're going to die. Remember that? Now... It's Jesus. And if you want any more evidence from Luke, go back to Luke 5 when they had the big catch of fish. And Peter realized what was going on. And he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. That's an allusion to Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord brings revelation to the prophet Isaiah, but he was saying, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of sinful lips. And so they have a revelation event that has its roots in the Old Covenant. Moses and Elijah are there, and their mantle, so to speak, is now that Jesus is the prophet Moses predicted. And he's more than a prophet. He is my son. So he's not only the lawgiver, he's the son. Eric, do you have anything to say about that? I knew you did. I can see the eagerness on your face. Yeah, we talked about it on the phone, yeah. Thank you, Bob. This is so exciting. We can't overestimate the significance of this passage. Peter gives us an interpretation also later in Second Peter of how significant this event was. And so turn your Bibles, if you will, to Second Peter chapter 1. 
um, as you're turning there, Second Peter 1. I got so many pages I want to keep open here. Verse 16, we'll begin there. Here's the issue, just very succinctly, in the book of Second Peter. There's false teachers that are saying Jesus isn't coming back. We can live any way we want. The reason Jesus isn't coming back, they said the apostles got the interpretation of Scripture wrong. And so the debate is over the proper interpretation of Scripture. So what does Peter appeal to to prove that he has the right interpretation and Jesus is coming back? His event that he saw yes, in the Mount right of Transfiguration, here. exactly what Bob is pointing us to. And that's what we see here in Second Peter 1.16. Peter says this. This is, again, refuting the false teachers who claim that Jesus is not coming back. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming. By the way, coming there is the parousia. So this is the technical expression for the return of Jesus. Uh-huh. The, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he had received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice. Now, this is what Bob was just describing in the Mount of Transfiguration. When we heard his voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And that's exactly what Bob just showed us here in Luke 19. Now, what's interesting is God the Father takes two verses from the Old Testament. He puts them together. One is Deuteronomy 18 that Bob was just pointing out that Jesus is the new spokesman. Listen to him. Yep. But the other part that comes from the Septuagint, if you turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, where there's a reference to the Son. So Psalm chapter 2, turn to verse 7. And this is why this is so significant. Uh, It's all significant, but this is just the coup de grace, in my opinion. Psalm 2, 7, notice it says, I will tell of the decree, Yahweh has said to me, you are my son. So where did we hear that? On the Mount of Transfiguration, there was testimony. Jesus is the Son. But now notice what he goes on to do. In verse 8, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh in fear with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's the gospel very succinctly. Amen. So what, did, what was proven right after verse 7 in Psalm 2 is this Jesus is going to reign over the nations. And therefore, if this son is going to reign over the nations, he has to come back. And therefore, Peter and the apostles did have the correct interpretation. It was verified and validated on the Mount of Transfigurations. Amen. Therefore, anyone who disagrees with them is, is wrong. And that's <laughs> why if you turn your Bible one more time to Second Peter chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The interpretation <laughs> has been ordained by the author. The author of Scripture is God and he has validated it through the apostles. The son must return. So all of this is tied wow. in exactly to what Bob is teaching. Thank wow. you. Yeah. Wow. Do you think somebody just made all this up? <laughs> and that's not even the end of it, because we're going to, I don't think we'll get there today, but there's a reference back to David 
and in 2 Samuel, but oh, no, to Samuel, Samuel and all the prophets, Samuel prophesied about the son that would come of the lineage of David. He's the only begotten son. We have no reason to be confused about this. Moses goes away. Elijah goes away. Jesus remains. He is the lawgiver of the new covenant. He appointed apostles who speak for him. As Eric was pointing out, and they had the word of prophecy made more sure. They were there as eyewitnesses of his majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice Luke 9, 36. And when the voice had spoken, now this is God himself speaking, just like he did at Sinai, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. I don't think they understood it yet until after the day of Pentecost. And now it's being reported in Acts chapter 3 and in 1 Peter. or two. Where were you, in 2 Peter or 1 Peter? Oh, uh, 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, okay. So I want to quote Peterson from the Pillar Commentary, who says this, A succession of prophets was raised up to follow Moses, but none was recognized as a prophet specifically like Moses himself. In time, Moses' words were interpreted as referring to one particular prophet who was yet to come and who would function as a prophet king and prophet lawgiver in the end of time. Moses' prophecy came to be regarded as messianic in its scope. Peter envisages Jesus as the eschatological prophet because he brings the ultimate revelation of God's will and leads God's people to final salvation. Jesus functions for Israel now as Moses did at the time of the Exodus. We've got everything in here, the cloud, the voice from heaven, the prediction that Moses made back in Deuteronomy 18, and it all points to Jesus, the prophet like Moses, whom God raised up, and we must listen to him. How grievous it is when you hear people say, I don't really need to listen to Jesus. Or they belittle the role of Jesus as the lawgiver. That is really bad. It's, it's really uh, insulting to our Lord to do that. Jesus said in John 12, 48, I have one that will judge him on the last day, that is the one who doesn't want to believe the wonders and signs, the word which I have spoken. I used that when I debated an emergent leader who says we can't expect spoken words to convey meaning. Of course, he has words. And he wrote books. I quoted that at the debate. I said, well, how can we be judged on something that we can't really know? Jesus said his words would be our judge on the last day. We must be able to read them, understand them, realize their application, and either believe and obey or not. 
Jesus is the lawgiver like Moses. And that's very, very clear in the Gospels, and especially Luke Acts. Listen. Okay, I quote Luke 9.35. I like to point out imperatives. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen is an imperative. It's a command from God. We're commanded by God the Father himself to listen to his son. I think it would be a good idea to do that. Acts 3.23. Listen to this. Oh, do I have some stuff to share about this verse. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. You may not realize what all is going on here, but there is a lot. This is an allusion to the Day of Atonement. Okay? Jesus came and provided atonement for the people. Peter preached about that on the day of Pentecost. Jesus proved he was who he claimed to be through his own resurrection from the dead. He appeared to many witnesses. He bodily ascended into heaven. There's no doubt that he is the one. And he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. So here it says, will not listen, will be cut off. That is from Leviticus 23, 29, and Numbers 15, 30. Let me turn to Leviticus 23, 29, the cut off part. I'm going to show you something. And this gets very, very interesting, in my opinion. I'll try to prove to you that it's very significant. 23:29 If any person does not practice self-denial on this particular day, he must be cut off from his people. So this is the day of atonement. If you go back verse 28 on this particular day, you're not to do any work for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for yourself before the Lord your God. So that issue was the day of atonement, right? And the one cut off is the one who poo-poos the day of atonement. I'll prove that to you for numbers. And so God says, this is the most important day. You have to practice self-denial. This was the only day that the Jews recognized a prescribed fast. They were to afflict their souls, which they interpreted as fasting, and they were to do so on the Day of Atonement. So they'd fast, afflict their souls, and think about how badly they had behaved in regard to God and his law. And this was on the Day of Atonement that there's expiation and propitiation. The sins are laid on the head of the scapegoat and carried away, expiation. The blood is poured out on the mercy seat, propitiation. The word mercy seat in the Greek in the New Testament is propit- propitiatory, or uh, a noun form of it that we could call mercy seat. This is in Romans 3. And so this is necessary. And what Peter is saying, 
which they all would have known. They would have known about Moses. They would have known about Numbers and Leviticus. And they would have known that if you say, oh, wait a second, I don't need this Day of Atonement. I think I'll go gather some wood. You'll see that in Numbers 15. They, they were to stone the guy that did that. He went and gathered wood. Uh, they were to be cut off. They're, and this is the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and apostasy. To reject the atonement that God provided was to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and commit apostasy and to be lost. Yikes. What are the implications that Peter is laying out here? Jesus Christ, the one whom God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He came, he was raised from the dead, he died for sins, he shed his blood, and thus is this perpetual day of atonement where God provided for sins once for all for any who believe. And if you reject Jesus, even though you may go to the Jewish Day of Atonement, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you're cut off, and you'll be damned. Because Jesus provides the atonement. I'm telling you what it says. Turn with me. Well, let's turn to Numbers 1530. And then we'll go look at some New Testament. Got a little bit of time here. This is the defiant sin. It says in Numbers 15:30, but the person who acts defiantly, whether native or foreign resident, blasphemes the Lord. Did you hear that? Blasphemes the Lord. That person is to be cut off from his people. There's the cut off. So the one who blasphemed the Holy Spirit and is cut off is the one who acts defiantly. And Peter was preaching to his Jewish audience, if you don't listen to Jesus and you don't come on his terms to receive forgiveness of sins, you're a blasphemer who will be cut off. The worst possible scenario that anyone could ever imagine. There's no, there remains, therefore, no more sacrifice for sins it says here in verse 31, he will be certainly cut off because he despised the Lord's word and broke his commandment. His guilt remains with him. Now let's turn to Hebrews. Hebrews 10, starting with verse 8. If you want to turn to it, it wouldn't be a bad idea. Hebrews 10, starting with verse 8. Then I have more, okay? Boy, if anybody needed a reason to come to Jesus, this should do it. Yeah, he was the one who was cut off. Right. I know. That's a good point. They cut off Jesus. But Peter says Jesus was the one who provides atonement. Therefore, you're going to be cut off. Right. So they have a debate about who's cut off, Jesus or them. Good reading. That's a good. They have a good reading. Hebrews 10.8. I'll go through verse 10. And after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, 
which are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What? Takes away Moses, adds, establishes the new prophet that God said to listen to. Verse 10, by this will we've been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. Hallelujah. So they had to have the Day of Atonement over and over again. And the author of Hebrews used that as proof that it wasn't effective. They had to keep doing it over and over. But Jesus did this once for all. You think of Rome and their silly sacrifice of the Mass. And it's really sad, isn't it? They don't understand once for all. The one cut off in the Old Testament was the one who refused the prescribed atonement. Those who reject Christ refuse the New Testament atonement, which is a worse offense. Turn with me to Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. It's far worse to reject Jesus than it was to reject Moses. Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside... The law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which he has sanctified? Notice, has insulted the spirit of grace. This is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He insulted the Holy Spirit who provided the atonement through Jesus and it's worse than rejecting Moses and it really wasn't too nice to have been the one who rejected Moses he died without mercy I thought of one Eric after I talked to you I thought of another passage we'll close on this one Galatians 5 4 Galatians 5 4 I'm thinking about this idea of being cut off and so Peter is, is warning his Jewish brethren that they could be cut off from God because they won't listen to Messiah who was appointed by God in keeping his promise to Moses. Galatians 5.4, look at this one. You have been severed from Christ. Cut off. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. Wow. In Galatians, they're thinking, well, we like Moses. We, you know, Jesus is okay, but we want to go back to Moses. What does Paul say about that? You're cut off, severed from Christ, and a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit. If you go back to the law of Moses, you blaspheme God. I didn't make this up. And maybe it sounds harsh, but I would not be doing my duty as a Bible teacher if I hid the implications of this from you. I need to make it as clear as I can. I'm obligated by God to do so. It is, it is startling. So we're either cut off from Christ if we still want Moses, whether just keep doing Moses or go back to Moses, 
But if we have Christ, we have our sins forgiven once for all, and we have the promise of eternal life. And we received the true atonement that God provides. And God himself said from heaven, this is my son, listen to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your only begotten son. Thank you for teaching us these things that we might see and fear and cling only to Christ. May we put our faith in him so that we receive the atonement you've provided and not be cut off. Help us to be content with your son Jesus and not lust for other things because in him we have everything. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.